It's a privilege to get to open the word of God with you again to 2 Thessalonians. And we open up the scriptures where it reveals to us that our God is a consuming fire. And he exacts his righteous judgment, scripture teaches, on all nations. And he pours out his wrath and his fury against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, which is humbling because Scripture says in Romans 3 that none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. Together we become worthless. And so we all fall under this influence and nobody that's exposed to this purifying, flaming fire of God remains the same. All will come under this fire and nobody exposed will remain unaffected. Bottervik and Ringgren, two names you probably haven't heard before, they write about the biblical metaphor of fire. And this is what they say, quote, Fire is not limited to any form. It blazes up to an intensity that's pure and inaccessible. It disseminates light and heat like stars and lightning flashes. It can be either beneficial or destructive. All of this give it the nimbus of the mysterious, the terrifying, the immaterial. God is a consuming fire. He's a flaming furnace. And it's important to know that where your relationship with Jesus Christ is, is extremely important for understanding how you will interact with this fire. And the earlier quote brings up an important point that in scripture, fire has two purposes. Either one, it's beneficial. The fiery ordeal purifies your heart and your soul and it's a refining judgment that will shape and conform your heart to the image of God and of his son, Jesus. It's purifying or it's destructive. And the fiery ordeal is torturous and it's retribution and it's vengeance and it's the fury of the living God that is poured out on his creation. It's one or the other. So we come this morning to 2 Thessalonians chapter one and we're in verses five to 12 and when we come to this section in our study, this is exactly the topic that Paul is addressing. And right at the outset, he wants you to understand and, and know that everybody is going to experience this fire. Everybody's going to experience judgment and whether it's a purifying judgment or a punitive punishing judgment, he wants you to understand and know that it is a righteous judgment. Verse five, God's judgment is consistent with his moral perfection and his nature and it is righteous and holy and good. Verse six, he's gonna jump and say it's, it's just. It's just and it's right and it's holy and it's good and, and all of this in verses 10 and 12, he's gonna say God will be glorified in it. And his power will be put on display and his saints, it says, will stand in awe of him and we will marvel and wonder at him and in his beauty and his might. And that's the purpose. And let's read it together. Second Thessalonians 1, verses five to 12. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy say, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you're also suffering since indeed God considers it just to repay, to repay those with affliction, those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to, as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you 
that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so last week, we, if you remember, Paul was talking about this faithful local congregation and he says, I, I'm so proud of you because everywhere I go, I, I, I praise God for you and I boast to you. And we say, why? Because your faith is growing and your love for one another is increasing and the fellowship among you as brothers are increasing and this is a wonderful thing that's to be praised. It's, it's the, the evidence that you have a faithful local church and Paul says this, all of this is evidence that God is at work. That doesn't happen naturally. And he says, all of this is evidence that you have come into contact with the fire of the living God, where he is purifying your hearts and your soul and so making you fall more in love. So making your fellowship sweet. This is the evidence of God's judgment. And in a few short verses, he's gonna say there's another fiery ordeal coming later. And this is going to be another judgment when God comes in flaming fire and in vengeance, he will judge the wicked with the punishment of eternal destruction. And so here you have these two judgments and what do they have in common? Paul says they are both righteous. They are both good. And Paul again will, will teach us that your relationship to Jesus Christ teaches you what your interaction with this fire will be like. And this is what the text is teaching, that there's a positive judgment for believers, a, a positive judgment. And he's gonna answer two questions about it. He's gonna say when this positive judgment's going to come, and he's gonna tell you why this judgment is coming. And then he says there's, there's another judgment which is also righteous, and it's negative. There's a negative judgment. He's gonna answer two questions. When is this judgment going to come, and why? Verse five teaches about teaches us about the positive judgment. When and when is it coming and what purpose does it serve? And then six and forward is gonna teach us about the negative judgment and when it's coming and why. And we're gonna begin where Paul begins in verse five with the positive judgment of God. And we're gonna answer the question, when? It says again, this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are already suffering. So when does this righteous judgment of God come? The answer is it's right now. When will you experience the righteous judgment of God? And the answer is you already are, but you might not recognize it as that because you haven't perceived it as that or counted it as that. But he, what he calls righteous judgment, we might call the purification of our hearts. It's a form of sanctification where God through trials and tribulations and suffering purifies your heart and makes it perfect and pure. And this is what Paul is saying is, is righteous judgment and he supplies lines of evidence that we've already seen. It's because their faith is increasing and their love and their fellowship was abounding. He says, this is proof that you've come into contact with God because God doesn't discipline everybody. Scripture says he disciplines his children. And if you're a child of God, he's not gonna let you live however you wanted to live in your formal self. He's going to, he's going to discipline you, he's gonna purify you. He's gonna bring his, his righteous judgment on you. And you're gonna see in verse 12, if you look ahead, all of this is according to the grace of God and the mercy of God that works in you. It's by his grace and his mercy that he chooses to purify you. This grace and this mercy is not undergone by, by everybody in this life. And in 1 Peter 4, 17, Peter says, it's time for judgment to begin where? At the household of God. 
When do you experience this judgment? It happens right now. What is, the, what is this judgment to Peter? He defines it as fiery trials that come upon you. And he tells the believers, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes upon you as if something strange was happening to you. Don't be surprised. Don't let it take you off guard when bad things come your way. When trials and tribulation and systematic persecution comes on you and your family as if something strange, because he says this is evidence of the grace and mercy of God that he's at work in your life and in your heart and in your family. This is to be maybe not celebrated, but it's doing its perfect work. And it's important to understand if you undergo his judgment in this life, you will not undergo his judgment in the next. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so it's, it's either now or then. And so praise God that you undergo his judgment now because he says he is making you worthy, verse five, of his kingdom. You skip down to verse 11, he's making you worthy of your calling. You say, how do I know that? We go to the second question. Why do we undergo God's righteous judgment? And the answer is because it makes us worthy of the kingdom and this, this word worthy uh, merits some attention because we don't want to mess up the gospel. We are unworthy of Christ's kingdom. And you know that that's the whole point of Jesus coming to seek and to save that which was lost is because we're not worthy. There's only one who was and his name is Jesus Christ. And so we recognize as Christians that we are unworthy of grace. We are unworthy of mercy, unworthy of the kingdom, which is why Christ had to come at all. And so what does it mean that we're made worthy the word can also be translated suitable or fit. You are made suitable for his kingdom. You are made fit for his kingdom. It means that when you step across the threshold of heaven or when he brings it down to you, you're gonna look like you belong there because you do belong there because he's helped you accomplish the holiness without which no one will see God. You belong to the kingdom. Your heart will be pure. It says in, in Matthew 3, 8 of John the Baptist, he says, bear fruit, worthy of repentance. And so this word doesn't mean deserving. That's the most important thing to understand about worthy. We hear worthy, it means, we think it means deserving as if we deserve the kingdom. And in Matthew 3, 8, when John the Baptist says bear fruit worthy of repentance, he doesn't mean bear fruit that's deserving of repentance. That doesn't make any sense. And so what he's saying is bear fruit that is fitting for repentance, bear fruit that is consistent or appropriate for repentance. And we might sum it up by saying this, you are being made ready for the kingdom of God. You are being made ready for your high calling that God has given you in Christ. That's the purpose. That's the why we undergo God's judgment in this life. And so trials and suffering are God's judgment and they do a lot of things. And, and scripture it teaches us that they prove our faith. How do you know that you're saved? How do you have assurance that you're gonna step across the threshold in the next life and spend an eternity with Christ? Well, the answer is, because you undergo trials and you undergo systematic persecution and pressure and the world doesn't put pressure on itself. They come together to put pressure on this church. And so when you and your family and your life suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ, he says rejoice because there you know. It's a, it's a source of assurance for you that Jesus is working in your heart. It proves your faith and it also purifies your heart. Because as God works on you and you undergo sufferings and trials and tribulations, you won't see somebody who is a Christian that undergoes tremendous suffering where they become less mature, will you? Or they become more conceited, more prideful, more vain, more arrogant, more lazy. No, when you go through this, it purifies your heart and you become more like the sun. 
It's a, it's a beautiful thing. It brings to nothing the old self. It exalts the new self. The old is diminished and the new is increasing. And you become more and more fit, not just for the kingdom of God, but for this life. You become a terrifying weapon in the hands of the living God when you've undergone suffering. That's what suffering does. And in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul sums it all up when he says this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And that's worth celebrating. It's, it's this righteous judgment is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. And so if you find yourself asking the question, why are things so hard for me? Or how long, O oh Lord, am I gonna go through this? The answer is because God is making you fit for use. He's making you worthy of an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And we remember that God uses means to do it. He doesn't just, it doesn't happen in a vacuum, does it? You don't get refined in a vacuum. He says, this is the means that God makes you like his son. And the, the premier illustration of this in scripture, the premier metaphor for it is the illustration of the refiner's fire. It's used over and over again in the Old Testament. And when you know where to look, it's over and over again in the New Testament. And the, the, there's this fire, we have them today. And in the Old Testament, they had them too. I don't know how they got fires that hot, but there'd be a box and it was a furnace. And when you go out into the world and you find precious metals, they're not yet fit for use, are they? They have iron and tin and bronze and lead in them. They have alloys and they need to be purified. And so you would mine that ore and you take it and you place it in the heart of the fire because the only way to take a metal and to remove the dross and to make it fit for use is concentrated and deliberate and intense fire. And Jesus says, this is a metaphor for your heart. This is you. You're, you have, as, as it says in Ezekiel 22, where he says, son of man, the house of Israel has become dross to me. All of them are bronze and tin and iron and lead in the furnace. They are the dross of silver. What is Ezekiel saying? Israel has made themselves unfit for use. They, they cannot glorify me. They cannot, I cannot use them for my kingdom because they have become so saturated with sin and self-righteousness and laziness. And so I, I can't use them anymore. They're unfit for use. And so the only way to take that raw element and turn it into something beautiful is fire. And so this is the metaphor for scripture. Many things are, are mentioned in scripture. It's for uh, the metaphor of your heart. He says, I have circumcised your heart. That's not something that you can do for yourself. This is something that only God can do to you and for you. He's taken away your heart of stone and he's given you a heart of flesh. You've been born again. You have a new nature. Your heart has been declared to be perfect and, and pure and of tremendous value, but the, the problem is that there's still dross on it. Because when you're saved, you still carry the old man and you still carry all the stuff that is with your silver is the premier illustration. And so what does God do? He refines you. He puts you in the furnace and he removes dross. And the only way to remove dross is by deliberate fire and praise God that God is a consuming fire. Amen. So over and over, your heart is pictured as silver and the refiner refines the silver with concentrated and deliberate fire, which are metaphors for the trials of affliction, which is why Peter says in chapter four, verse 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. You're being made fit for the kingdom of God. You are made suitable. You'll look like you belong there. And not only the future kingdom where you will, you'll find yourself living according to it, but he says in this life, 
The more trials you go through, remember, the more useful you are to God, and you will become a terrifying weapon in the hands of the living God, and that's the point. You become useful for his kingdom, and he is glorified in you, and it says in you, in him, and he is magnified, and he is exalted, and his majesty extends to the corners of the earth, and and that's what this passage is teaching. That's why the righteous judgment comes on you. I want, to hear, I want you to hear some passages in the Old Testament where God is this fire. Isaiah 125, I will turn my hand against you and I will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And if you don't understand that metaphor, if we haven't gone through this discussion now and have this understanding, it sounds terrifying. God's gonna turn his hand against you and you say, that sounds like judgment. And you're right, it is. And you say, why? I will remove your dross and remove your alloy. And he says, he's making you beautiful. Isaiah 48, 10. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver is refined. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. This, God's reputation is at stake because he says, I've given you my glory. I've given you my Holy Spirit. He says, and I will not take it away. I'm not gonna give my glory to somebody else and here's the promise, you will glorify me, you will magnify my name and he's gonna ensure that by smelting away your dross. Zechariah 13, eight, and the whole land declares the Lord, two thirds shall be cut off and perish and one third shall be left alive and then what does he do with that one third? I will put them in the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name. I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. It's beautiful. Finally, Malachi 3, 2 to 3, the very end of the Old Testament. Malachi says, for he is like a refiner's fire. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. This is what happens. Listen to all of the language of what happens when you've gone through suffering. They will bring offerings in righteousness. They will say the Lord is my God. They will call upon his name. They will glorify God in heaven. It's a beautiful thing. As hard as it may be to endure now, you are being made to be like Christ. And so God puts you into the fire and you come out and he says, you don't look like my son yet, put him in again. And you're put in the fire again and he says, you don't yet glorify me the way that you should glorify me, put him in again. My majesty is going to extend to the ends of the earth through you, put him in again. And you come out perfect and pure and useful and fit for earthly use and fit for the kingdom of God. And we see that this is God's righteous judgment on us that we experience now. But what happens if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ? What if you don't have these hardships and this suffering and this judgment? And what if your life is easy and you're not suffering for the name of Christ at all? Read with me verse six. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and away from the glory of his might. Two questions of the negative judgment. When will it come and why? He answers the first one. 
When will it come? Verse 10, he says, on that day. This is the same day we discussed in 1 Thessalonians over and over again. We're moving into a discussion of that day here in 2 Thessalonians. It's the future day of the Lord when Jesus is revealed from heaven. His precious feet touch this earth once again. And he says he comes in flaming fire and with his his myriad and myriad of 10,000s and 10,000s of angels and he comes to judge the world. And on that day, the mourning of the church becomes joy and the joy of the world turns into mourning. That's the day that he's talking about. And it says it happens in the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this word revelation means the unveiling or the revealing. And when you hear it in scripture, it's very frequently associated with the second coming of Jesus Christ. Just a few examples. First Corinthians 1. Verses seven to eight, as you wait for the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, he will sustain you until that day. First Peter 1, six to seven, it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He goes on, verses 12 to 13, uh, the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. First Peter four, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad at the revelation of his glory. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, in Romans 2, you're storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And so here you have the same language. You've seen that you undergo the righteous judgment of God in this life. That is called God's righteous judgment, but there is another future judgment that is also called the righteous judgment of God, and it's gonna happen on that day. And it makes verse nine one of the most sobering, if not the most sobering passages that Paul ever writes in the New Testament because it's here that Paul talks about the eternal punishment known as hell. And Paul doesn't use the word hell, but you can recognize it by its fruit. He says in verse nine, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and away from the glory of his might. So he says they will come upon eternal destruction. The word is literally the word ruin. And it's the only other word that's used three times in scripture where he says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. But if you do not believe in his name, he says, a ruin, 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 I will make you. And this word eternal that he uses in conjunction with it is is used eight times in Paul for describing eternal life. And now he says it's also used in the same way to discuss eternal destruction or eternal death. And he answers the question, why will this negative judgment come? And he begins to systematically work through that. There's a myriad of reasons. It starts in verse six with the first reason. You might call it recompense. It's making amends for harm that is suffered. He he considers it just, he says in verse six, to repay with affliction those who afflict you. He uses this word over and over again. There's this systematic affliction that the world has put on us. And he says, the affliction with which they afflicted you, I will afflict them with that same affliction. And you see very frequently in scripture in Psalm nine and 10, for instance, where it says the very traps that the world sets out for the church, they're gonna fall into their own traps. They're gonna fall into the own snares and it's their own doing will come back on their own head. It's amends for harm that is suffered. He gives another reason in verse seven. Why this judgment? This is because God grants relief to suffering Christians. And so if you ask the question, are you tired and weary in this world? There's a day coming that is a day of relief. And as is always in scripture, the day of salvation for one is the day of judgment for another. It's a good day for some and a bad day for others, but God is going to bring relief. And so rest is coming 
for those whom Jesus sends out as sheep among wolves. There's a day where no longer you're a sheep among wolves, you're the sheep among your good shepherd. And there's a day coming where you're no longer considered a sheep to be slaughtered, but you are with your savior away from the wicked forever. And so if you come and you say, how long, O Lord? This verse is for you. Relief is coming, and it's coming on that day when God comes to judge the wicked. And I want to point out theologically that there's a doctrine that's become very popular. There's a lawyer called Edward Fudge who made this popular in his book, The Fire That Consumes, back in 1982. The doctrine is called annihilationism, which basically means that the fires of hell are not, according to the traditional understanding of the church, eternal, or the fires may be eternal, but he says they're meant to consume and to destroy. So ultimately, there is no enduring torment and suffering for the wicked, and I wanna show that this is not consistent with 2 Thessalonians, and it's not consistent with Jesus' own words in Matthew, because the relief comes not for the wicked, the relief comes for the church. And if God were to, to cut short the suffering of the wicked, that would be relief for them. The emphasis is never on relief for the wicked, the emphasis is on relief for the church and for the saints and for those who are beloved of God. Jesus says in Matthew 25, 46, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And what annihilationism does is it begins to draw a wedge between these verses and it says that there's an eternal conscious bliss for all those who know Jesus Christ and an unconscious short-lived destruction for those who don't. And so we have to see this verse, it's it's a mirror. Whatever's happening in one is the opposite in the other. If there's an eternal conscious bliss for those who know Jesus, then there is eternal conscious suffering for those who don't. And so for us, this is why we have compassion for those who do not know God and why we must be so quick to share the good news to those who don't because we believe this. With all of our hearts, we believe this. We truly believe the words of scripture that there is an eternal bliss for those who know God, where you will be with your savior forever in the, in the power of his might and in the presence of his glory. And we truly believe that there is an eternity separated from God for those whom God does not make fit for that. And the only way they can hear this or to be spared from this judgment is to hear the good news that there is a savior who will spare you from this vengeance and he will put you through the refiner's fire in this life and make you fit for his kingdom. A third reason why this judgment has to take place comes in verse eight. He says to have vengeance on those who do not know God. God considers it just to bring vengeance on those who do not know him and it's here, it says he comes with angels and flaming fire. And I wanna point out it's not a refining fire. The refiner's fire stops at the second coming of Jesus Christ. When he comes in his vengeance, it's not a refining flame. It says in Daniel 11, 12 that emphasizes Jesus as the Lord of hosts, which means the God of angel armies. And Daniel 11, 12 says that there's legions of angels, 10,000s and 10,000s that serve this God. And he's revealed on that day with all of his armies coming to bring vengeance and flaming fire. These very vessels, these created vessels that Every time they reveal to somebody in scripture, the angels have to begin their conversation by saying, please don't be afraid of me. And on that day when God comes, whoever these angels are serving must be pretty impressive to see that these 10,000 legions of angels come bowing their knee in service to this person and worshiping him. And you say, who do they serve? 
Psalm 2410 asks that question, who is this king of glory? Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. Isaiah 37, 16, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the angels, you are the God and you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. And so the Lord is coming, and he is coming, scripture says, with vengeance, with a glorious power. And on that day, the world will reverberate, reverberate with his power. It will reverberate with his vengeance. Verse nine says, it is a glorious power. And it's a judgment that the flood of Noah was only a picture of. And it's at this point we look to our culture and say, the Bible reveals Jesus as so much more than just a great moral teacher. And when he's revealed, the world will not say, there's our great moral teacher. And we look to our own Western church and we say, Jesus is not your homeboy. And he's not your buddy. And when he's revealed in flaming fire with his angels who are there to execute his eternal will and vengeance, you're not gonna say, there is my co-pilot. And you're not gonna run and give him a high five. You're going to bow your knee and you will declare him to be Lord and you will worship him. You're not gonna give him a high five. And there's a reason that Jesus is called one time in scripture in John 15, your friend. And over 600 times in the New Testament, he is called your Lord. And that's the perspective that our church needs. We need this perspective. The final reason comes in verse 10. Why this negative judgment on the world? Verse 10 says, because Jesus is to be glorified in his saints and he is to be marveled at by all those who believe. And so who is this vengeance for? He says it over and over. Those who do not know God. 1 Thessalonians 4, 4 to 5, like the Gentiles who do not know God. In our passage, all those who do not know the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, all those who do not obey those who do not know God, verse six, those who afflict you, it's all of the same people. Judgment is coming for those who do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Vengeance is coming on those who do not know God, but the, the beauty is you can know God and you can know him today because scripture says that if you know Jesus Christ, you know the Father. And anyone who believes in Christ believes in the one who sent him and so you can, you can know Christ through his word and you can know Christ even through this body that he is the one who came from heaven. He is the one who died to take on your sins so that anybody who puts their faith in his work, that he came, that he died, that he suffered, that he took the wrath of God on your behalf will be saved. And if you do not put your, your trust in Jesus, believing that his work is enough to save you from an eternal hell, you will face the wrath of God yourself. Either Christ covers it for you or on that day you will experience the vengeance and the fury of God. And scripture said it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But you can know him through Christ. You can know God the Father through Christ and he can be glorified in you and you can stand in awe of him if you will believe. And so we say, church, in light of all of this, how shall we then live? In light of all of this, what are we to do? Verses 11 and 12, Paul says, to this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy, fitting, suitable of his calling, and may fulfill every resolve for every good work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our Lord. And so what are we to do? The Bible says we pray for this. We don't only believe this, but we pray for this, that he would refine our hearts 
that he would inflict judgment on the wicked, that he would be glorified in us, that he would make us fit for use in this life and fit for use in the kingdom and to make us worthy of our calling. These are the very things that we pray for. And here at the end of the, the passage is what I call the silver chain. Anybody know the golden chain that comes in Romans 8? Where he says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed in the image of his son. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified and presumably sanctified and he will glorify. From eternity past to eternity future, salvation it comes through Christ. He holds you in his hands. But there's also a chain with respect to your fitness for the kingdom of God. And you see it in this passage. He says, you submit yourself to this design, verse 12, according to the grace of God. So all of this is unlocked by the, the grace and the mercy of God who pours out his grace and mercy in your heart and you begin this chain, the silver chain. What happens when God shows mercy on you? Well, you become, you, you, you get this desire, verse 11 says. It's an inner resolve, a deep inner desire to accomplish good things in the world. And you're becoming fit for use and there's this inner desire where you say, I want to do good, even if you can't necessarily do it at that time. And verse 11 begins to transform and it says these inner desires give birth to true fruitful works of righteousness. And that's where we step alongside women like Brandy and we, we begin to engage with DHS. We begin to, to do for others what God has done for us where we care for the orphan and the widow. We, we, we care for those that do not know Christ and we preach the gospel to them and we actually begin to bear Christian fruit. Inner desire gives birth to true fruitful works of righteousness and ultimately at the end of the verse it says Jesus will be glorified in you. He has given you his glory and he will not give it to another. That's the silver chain and that's where anybody who knows Christ, this is where you are, this is the great trajectory of your life. God's grace has shown in your heart. You have a resolve for good which turns into works of faith, which turns into fitness for his kingdom, which means leads to you on the last day standing in awe at the glory and the might and the power of the living God. All that to sum up with 1 Peter 1, he says, in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, in glory, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. All of this is worked out by God for his glory on that day. And I end with a few words that, that you've already heard as means for you to rejoice, the Gettys, and their hymn say, when trials come, don't be afraid. When trials come, no longer fear, for in the pain our God draws near to fire a faith worth more than gold. And it's there that his faithfulness is told. Rejoice insofar as you share in the sufferings of Christ. Uh, reflecting on these very verses, John Rippon wrote, when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient will be your supply. The flame cannot hurt you. I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. This is the righteous judgment of God. Will you pray with me? Lord of hosts, like you, we pray for these things. God, as, as hard as it can be in our flesh to say, God, we want you to bring judgment on the wicked because it's in accordance with your eternal plan and your design for this world. We pray that to all those who say, how long, O Lord, that you would remind them in this moment that a, a, the day is coming where they will no longer be afflicted, 
The systematic oppression of the world will no longer pressure us. But God, you are working in our hearts, God, that they would be pure. That's our prayer, Lord, that you would bring judgment on the wicked, that you would bring judgment and it would begin at the household of God today and that we wouldn't curse you and we wouldn't question why these negative circumstances are happening, but to understand the purpose, as you have told us beforehand, Lord, that they are meant to make us like your son. And they are meant to purify our hearts like a refiner purifies silver so that like gold and like silver that has gone through the furnace seven times, the psalmist says, we will be able to stand before you fit and ready for your kingdom. And it's all for you, all for your glory. We marvel at your name, Lord, and sing praises back to you. Amen. Amen.